a year ago. I remember it like it was yesterday. We were in Germany, we were at a conference, and I said, you know, I have been trying to encourage students to really engage in um, speaking up when they see injustice and to really see themselves as advocates, and if not advocates, agents of change, right? So you can be an advocate for change, you can be an agent for change. Right. And the, the, the person's response to me was, well, I, I don't know why you don't understand why students wouldn't engage in that way because they don't have power. And I heard, I heard, I heard the statement and I said, huh, I never thought about that before. And I let it sit. And it, the thought came to me earlier this week and I realized why that statement for me, while it was true, was problematic. Mm-hmm. Because I think we always have agency and we have personal power. We may not have the autonomy to exercise it in the ways that we would like, but we have the agency. We're in an apparent golden age of activism. Protests have been sparked across the country against the state-sanctioned killing of Black men and women without due process. We're having mainstream conversations about health disparities, particularly magnified by the pandemic of novel coronavirus, right? So you have all these people who now are suddenly like, we're having conversations about health disparities. Because you're stuck at home. Exactly. (laughs) And now we're becoming aware of Mm -hmm. what Black people, how they're interfacing with the healthcare system. So in this age, underrepresented minorities are in a precarious position, yet one, if you ask me, that's ripe with opportunity. What does speaking out look like for medical professionals? How can those in the medical field, students in particular, speak out without fear of retribution from institutional powers? Does the off-quoted code of medical professionalism leave room for budding medical activists? And if it does, then who then is best positioned to take up these roles as active change agents in their medical communities? Activism works like any other arena in the academic space. Who has the privilege to either absorb or be immune to the consequences of active advocacy and who does not? This is a medical history in color. Martha, what would you say that activist means to you? What does that word mean to you? When I hear the word activist, I usually think of mm, like the civil rights era. So I think of people who are marching for rights and um, people who were like abused. And you see the pictures of like police are hitting them and abusing them because they're marching for like Mm-hmm. regular old rights like voting mm-hmm. or to be in spaces mm-hmm. um, that's generally what I think about when I think about an activist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I always think of someone who is willing to absorb a risk a lot of people aren't going mm-hmm. to take right because when you're talking about activists you're talking about people who are advocating for things that are technically good for a majority of people right from their from their per, um, perspective but they're willing to absorb the risk of the actions it might take to draw attention to that issue, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're talking even about the civil rights era, I think sometimes we talk about the civil rights era and we think all black people were like, yeah, let's all like, you know, make sure that we're doing the sit-ins and sitting at the counter and getting sprayed by water hoses. But there was definitely a faction of black people who were like, no, Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna be involved in that. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to take my bus and you guys do what you're going to do. I don't know why you're causing so much trouble. But I think though that group is a lot smaller then than it was now. Mm. Does that make you sense? think there's more people now who are kind of willing to sit out yeah. these um, political fights, so to speak. Yeah, because I think the reason that so much change was able to happen is because so many people were willing to take that risk. Hmm. As compared to now, where I feel like, even take me, for example, 
there's certain um, like protests that I would want to go to, but then I, I think like, what if I get arrested? If I get arrested, I'm not going to get into residency. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and I have to think, is it worth it? Me, like me not making it to residency, not becoming a doctor and not helping the black community or is like I have to weigh it, like what I think is more important. Yeah, and we've weighed this before, like especially in the era of like these George Floyd protests and all these protests about police brutality. It's like we definitely had protests that we wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, even beyond that, right? When Donald Trump was first elected and they had like the women's march, I definitely mm-hmm. wanted to go to the women's march. I knew that they weren't gonna be doing anything to women at the women's march. You knew what I mean? Mm-hmm. Versus when we're talking about protests against police brutality against black people specifically, like, you know, I'm looking at the headlines and I'm like, Oh, this is not going to be good. Like Mm -hmm. there's a very good chance you could be arrested. Even if you're not arrested, there's a very good chance that you could be harmed. What does this mean for my medical career? And Mm -hmm. am I doing my best? Am I operating in my correct lane of advocacy or activism, right? Potential activism Mm -hmm. by being someone who is on the ground at a protest versus someone who is committed to getting into residency and being a part of the medical system? Or is that just like, you know, lazy elitism talk? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I have a, this is random, but I had a friend who went to one of the protests um, and he was there, he was there as a medical volunteer Mm -hmm. and he's Asian and he got arrested. And I was like, imagine if I went, how much more likely am I going to be to get arrested? And they're arresting journalists. They're making sure they're arresting people who can actually report on the accurate, like accurately on the conditions on the ground Mm -hmm. at these protests. So there is definitely almost like, there's a target on everyone's back, basically, if you're Mm -hmm. protesting against the establishment. No one is immune Mm -hmm. to being arrested at this point, because right now at this point, we're just trying to suppress the protests and get back Mm -hmm. to like, you know, status quo. This is America. And we don't talk about our racism. I'm seeing the idea of a medical activist nowadays. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you have to even put the word medical in front of it, right? Because you would think that by nature of being a Black physician, especially the way that we've talked about our predecessors, there is no way to be a Black physician and not be a medical activist, quote unquote. Like by, we've talked about this before, by our very nature, we're these kind of change agents or things that kind of question the status quo, just a Black person showing up in a medical space, in a professional space and saying like, I am able to practice, I am just as competent as you are, I have the tools to be a very effective and maybe even superior physician in certain Mm -hmm. settings. Um, So when I think of someone who is an activist and think of that being a joint in medical activism, I think I have a, a, a few more questions because what is absorbing that risk look like for someone who is a physician, for someone who is a medical student, for someone who's a resident? Mm -hmm. And how is it that you protect that sense of justice in yourself as you're kind of like coming up through a medical system that's telling you that in order to be professional, you have to be a good and silent student. I remember my first year here on the ward. So I was on neuro wards and there was a patient who brought into contention the idea that there's no global warming. He Mm -hmm. said, I can't even remember exactly what he said because this is years ago at this point. But I remember, you know, like the physician kind of glossed over it. And I thought it was so interesting because now I'm comparing that to like being on my family medicine rotation Mm -hmm. and being working under a black woman who when she hears someone say something incorrect, Mm -hmm. she's like, no, this might not have anything specifically to do with your visit, but we're going to pause here Mm -hmm. And we're going to we're going to dissect like this is not correct and how it would be helpful for you to cur- to remedy this thought basically like she does not think of that as separate from mm-hmm. her medical practice but I remember working under this um this non black neurologist and her just kind of going oh yeah you know the, the, the global warming yeah that's not a thing like you know just kind of trying to gloss over it mm-hmm. and so I'm like is it unprofessional to correct untruths about social realities that people are experiencing. Mm -hmm. This episode, we kind of wanted to just explore this idea of medical activism, basically. We wanted to explore the idea of what it looks like to be a medical student who is active and politically vocal, who is politically engaged, not just at their, their home institution, but just in social issues in general, like medical students who not, who don't just want to be clinical practitioners, but who want to basically go into a field practice and also operate as a sort of change agent in those fields that they're in. Um, not just even specialties, but even when it comes to socioeconomic conditions and social conditions. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of contention, I think about this point because there is an old guard in medicine, I think, who it benefits to suppress <laughs> suppress discussion about some of these issues in the medical field and how the medical field is not 
it's not immune to the racism that we see outside in regular society. It's shaped by that same racism. That's what this whole, I would say that's what this whole program kind of is honing in on. Mm -hmm. That we're not a separate universe, that we are one and the same, and that medicine doesn't exist in a a vacuum, Vacuum. a historical or cultural vacuum. I remember, um, I think a few weeks ago, that article came out about black babies doing better under black pediatricians. So the rate of, oh, I would, I wish I could quote the article right now. We should probably add that into that. Well, yeah, we should add it. But I remember reading that and then going on Twitter and seeing the reactions. And so many people, including black people, were like, this is true. This isn't true. This is like, this is fake news. Like, how can this possibly be true? Because like, science is science, medicine is medicine. And it really dawned on me that so many people really believe that medicine just exists in a vacuum Mm -hmm. and that there aren't other things that affect the way patients are treated Mm -hmm. and and affect the outcome that a patient has. Mm -hmm. It's not just, oh, I, I don't see color and if this patient has hypertension, I'll give them this drug. There's so much more that goes into it, which affect our patient i was just and i think i was really really surprised about how many people didn't believe that that study was true even though it was a pretty um it was like several studies and it was like longitudinal for like several years and stuff mm-hmm. it was like good studies but mm-hmm. yeah it was a little as people didn't want to see that mm-hmm. so my other question for you mm-hmm. martha right so once the first time you wanted to speak up in a professional space and felt afraid to, or even just reluctant to? Mm-hmm. I, this was, I'll choose one in medical school just because it's the most recent, but I was on a certain rotation mm-hmm. and there was an African-American patient who had just had something like very, I don't want to say traumatic because a lot of people experience it, but it is pretty traumatic. It's a lot that the person goes through. And this patient, she was a female. She was um, complaining about pain. And she she was really causing a lot of commotion on the floor, right? But the, um, the attending and the residents were sort of brushing off her pain because they were like, oh, it's because she's constipated that she has this pain, so she just needs to defecate. But I wanted to speak up for her and say, well, even though it's just constipation, as you say, it's causing her a lot of pain. And she just gave birth. Now we know what rotation it is. But she just gave birth. So, like, imagine, Mm -hmm. like, how much pain she is. And we're not doing anything to address the pain. Like, they're Mm -hmm. not giving her pain medication. Or if there was, it clearly wasn't enough because she was in a ton of pain. Mm -hmm. And she was, like, crying and pacing and, like, she was clearly in distress, and I really wanted to be like, no, you guys need to give her more pain medication. But I was, no, I'm a lowly third year, so I was like, let me not say anything. <laughs> I expected um, someone else who was also black, I expected that person to say something because that person was of a higher rank than I was. But that person didn't say anything. Mm. So I just really, I just became quiet. And then when we were leaving the patient's room, I like whispered to the other black person who was there. I was like, oh, she seems to be in a lot of pain. Like, what can we do for her? And she and she basically brushed it aside. It was like, oh, you know, we're, we're already doing something for her pain. And I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I feel like I could have said more for the patient at that time, especially like I saw that the other black person who was definitely of a higher social or professional hierarchy than I was, didn't say something. I thought that was like, my moment to step up but mm-hmm. I was too afraid I was like I'm just a third year and I think it goes past even when you're a third year because one thing that I think of observed even on rotations is that when black people are in these spaces even when they're of a higher professional ranking they're already really wearing of being wary of being that black person you know that black person who's constantly contesting the treatment plan who's mm-hmm. constantly holding up the meeting who's constantly like we maybe need to consider this mm-hmm. a little bit differently than i hear us speaking about it and i think that kind of weighs on you the entire time that you're kind of traversing medical education and so by the time you're getting to this place where you're a resident and then even in attending maybe you're just less likely to speak on certain things even when you feel like a patient's being mistreated and maybe mm-hmm. you feel like you don't have as much power to do anything about that because mm-hmm. let's say that you're a resident right and you bring that up 
somebody else higher in the hierarchy could just decide, no, we're not doing that for mm-hmm. that patient. That's you true. just made yourself, you know, kind of um, stand out from the crowd. Exactly. Like, for known a, as a difficult one. Known as the difficult um, physician. And you could have just avoided all of that by not saying anything. Mm-hmm. And I think um, black students feel a lot of pressure to fit in. And so a lot of the time you don't want to speak up on things that you might be particularly sensitive to or be particularly intuitive to. And you know that you're a bit more intuitive about those things than mm-hmm. some of your other colleagues or mm-hmm. classmates or even some of your superiors. Mm-hmm. I also think sometimes, at least for me, sometimes I say, well, maybe it's a, it's, me not knowing medicine well enough because yes. I do have to remember I'm still a student. Yeah, I'm like maybe I don't know. Yeah, what so I'm talking about. I, like I'm not the attending. I don't know anything. So yeah, there's that. There's that. There's that side also where it's not just about advocating for your patients, but you could advocate for your patient, be completely wrong, and look like an idiot. Yeah, you could be second guess. It's like you second guess what you're perceiving a lot of the time mm-hmm. and saying like maybe I'm just not experienced enough to know better. Mm-hmm. I definitely had that happen to me like several times. Mm-hmm. I think on rotation, like I remember one particular time we're dealing with this patient who is an antisocial. He's someone who has bipolar disorder, and I felt like the team was being really dismissive of him. Allegedly because he's antisocial, right? Mm-hmm. Like saying he's manipulative, saying he's difficult. He's describing scenarios where he feels like he's also someone who has PTSD. So mm-hmm. he's describing scenarios where he feels like people are touching him or coming up to him in ways that are inappropriate and triggering for mm-hmm. him. And instead of the medical team being sensitive to that, they're kind of maligning that and saying that he's aggressive, he's difficult to deal with. And, you know, he has no right to kind of assert those boundaries with different people to say that people can't touch him a certain way. People can't deal with him a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but wonder, would you say the same thing about a white or even white and female trauma victim? Mm-hmm. Someone who was telling you that they had PTSD or had been sexually assaulted mm-hmm. or had been touched inappropriately. Would you say that same thing to them about mm-hmm. them asserting their boundaries? Mm-hmm. And it's difficult because there's kind of like this, this cynicism, this hardness that I see that kind of, um, that kind of takes over the, the longer you seem to practice mm-hmm. where you're like, it, some people call it experience, right? And it could be experience, mm-hmm. but it's also kind of like a cynicism where it's like, you know, these are patients who are trying to get over on me in one way mm-hmm. or another, and there's nothing wrong with them or mm-hmm. they are manipulative or they are just antisocial. Like this is being dramatic. I think in answering that question, I kind of wanted to take the take a moment to kind of move into the the meat, I guess, of our podcast episode today, right? So when we talk in previous episodes about a lot of these figures that we are kind of introducing you to throughout this podcast, there are people who are naturally activists and are being raised to be activists. Like you heard me and Martha talk about David Peck. We were talking mm-hmm. about Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. McCune, Dr. McCune exactly. Smith. Exactly, Dr. McCune Smith, who they came into medicine with an agenda. Yeah. They did not come into they medicine. They came in like guns blazing. Exactly. They had, like, they had plans. They were like, I'm going to be a doctor, but I'm also going to be writing these papers, refuting things that trifling Thomas Jefferson <laughs> keeps writing about black people. Like nothing, there are no bars here. There is no ceiling. Like I'm coming here to do multiple jobs and wear multiple hats. I am mm-hmm. not just a black physician. I'm an activist. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be administration. Like I am going to come in here and change how you think about black people practicing medicine and about black people in general. Not, mm-hmm. it's not just about black people in medicine. Right? So now I see when we talk about medicine and we talk about professionalism, there's this misconception now that medicine has always been and should be apolitical, especially at the school that we go to, right? We go to the school where people prefer to remove their political views from their practice and prefer to pretend those things don't shape how they practice. And this is kind of this kind of false idea of an objectivity that physicians are bringing to their practice, right? I do have to say for our institution, I think that religion... The religion mm. we our institution practices is also also really plays a part. I think largely as a whole, the wider religion tries to be apolitical. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's also a really big um a big role in that. Plays a big role in that. I can definitely see that because I think their idea is that when you kind of Because it's not just about science, right? Like, even when we're talking about religion, the idea is that when you have this absolute 
object, this quote unquote, this absolute mission or this core mission that is supposed to supersede any sort of like human logical fallacies that can kind of infiltrate that mm -hmm. mission or kind of like um, transpose itself or superimpose itself over that mission. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of arrogance where you think that you're someone who can't, who is immune to racism, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Who's immune to racist thought as, you know, like a white person who's in a religious background or comes from a background firmly in STEM. There's, you know, this idea, this arrogance that thinks that you can't be sexist because you're objective. You're just viewing people objectively and logically. So... Even recently, I don't I don't want to dignify this text with a citation, right? But <laughs> like within the last week or so, there was a prominent figure in medicine who published an article or kind of like, you know, his own his own manifesto, so to speak, saying that he does not think that physicians have a place in social justice and political justice. The idea is that our expertise is restricted solely to clinical expertise. And so, again, like I said, you see this kind of false idea that physicians are separate from politics. They're, they're separate from politics and they're not touched by politics. They're not touched by any of these social maladies that we talk about mm -hmm. in the social sciences. Mm -hmm. But that, ha honestly, that has not been the case from the white pro-slavery practitioners we've discussed in earlier episodes to the maverick anti-slavery white and black practitioners who challenged a pro-slavery institution of medicine and society at large. Practitioners have always blended their politics with practice. There is always an agenda that they bring to practice, whether they're willing to acknowledge it or not. I think what's dangerous is the presumption that we can ever practice completely objectively and separate from the systems that we live in, mm -hmm. because that means that we're not going to take the time to dissect those systems and dissect the part that we might play in those systems, really take time to analyze where we are as far as where we are in the machine, right? Mm -hmm. So we saw this logical fallacy in religion, like we just said, and other allegedly objective systems that claim to adhere to an absolute truth. Ignoring the reality of politics instead magnifies the effect those politics play in our practice. It doesn't diminish them. It means that more often than not, you are going to fall prey to these social systems or these social inequities or giving into these social inequities, feeding into these social inequities in a way you might not if you were more willing to examine those things mm -hmm. and examine the role that you might play in those things. We wanted to invite a guest on our show, a colleague and someone who has managed her own form of activism adjacent to her medical education. So she's another medical student like us and is so much devoted to making sure that her educational trajectory matches her activism that she's decided to take a year off this year and is taking that gap year to pursue her MPH. So why don't you introduce yourself, Tosin? Hi, everyone. My name is Olua Tosin Abiodua Debi. I go by Tosin. I'm a first year medical student on pause. <laughs> uh, like Adrian said, I'm currently at Berkeley, uh, diving into the intersection of healthcare equity, health policy, and really human health what it looks like to take care of the whole person. Yeah, that's me. Hi, I'm also a graphic Hi. artist and a photographer, so get at me. Multifaceted, well-rounded woman, well-rounded black woman. So tell us a little bit about what you think of, how would you define activism, Tosin? Oh, okay. Um, activism. Activism, to me, I think about the word activator. Activism um, is action. I think with... Hmm social movements as we look at it throughout the course of our history as a nation there were a couple folks who kind of stand out as switching the gauge from the status quo to thinking outside from the status quo so activism to me looks like um, stepping up and speaking out about why the status quo the norm is not okay and why we need to do something different um, so for me activism looks like action against the status quo you talk about the idea of being like a human health activator. What do you mean by activator as opposed to activist? Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> I think that's just like my mind and how I see things. Um, when I think about an activator, that puts me in the framework of actually doing something. So mm. to be like a human health activator, for me, that means one, understanding what human health actually is. A lot of times, I remember even throughout third year, we'd always talk about like healthcare leaders, healthcare providers, healthcare systems. And I was just like, why are we always emphasizing healthcare? 
And actually one of my peers, his name is Savio, um, started talking to me about human health, right? I want to be a human health leader. I want to be a human health activator in the sense of I want to activate the thought process, the paradigm shift of caring about human health more than we do about healthcare, caring about the individual, the community, and what it actually means to obtain health for an individual or community. I want to activate that framework in the way we do medicine and the way we take care of people. So it sounds like your idea of activism is very much around kind of like action-based, whether that action is inspiring other people, whether that action is like triggering a different, I think you use the word paradigm, triggering a paradigm shift in people. You want to make sure that some action is taking place when you're talking about being an activist or being a human health activator. Exactly, exactly. And I see activism as different from advocacy, which is a lot of what um, we do in medicine, honestly, right? We might not be the ones who are directly involved, but we try to advocate mm. for others. And in this realm of activism, different from advocacy, because we're trying to bring the action in to what we're speaking, yeah. right? We don't want to live in mm. theory. We want to walk it. We want to do it. We want to actually achieve that in some form or way. It sounds like advocacy <laughs> is more connected to like theory or like ideology, like a lot of our textbook learning about healthcare disparities and about like different socioeconomic profiles. And when you think of activism, you're thinking about action, doing, what are we doing about that? And let me also point out that in advocacy, there can also be action, right? So for example, if I'm working with a patient who has been time and time again denied healthcare because of their status as a documented or undocumented citizen, yes, right? What does it look like to advocate for them to have a policy change where we actually start caring about their health, right? So that can look like action because of a policy change through advocacy. But with activism, right, there's more just this continuous cycle of contention of action followed by action, right? Where you have that one person who might be doing something and it looks a little strange, but the second person joins mm. and then the third person and then it kind of topples, right? Where it becomes something mm. people can take ownership of. So it doesn't even look like it's activism anymore because we're all not doing it. But there's always that one person or that group of people who like did it first. So who said no first? So who continued to say no? <laughs> it's yeah. consistently saying no. I like that also. I like that phrase that you use. What is it? Um, that she just used more of this cycle of contention. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Because it's talking about you have to bring something into contention when you're talking about activism. Activism is not, I think sometimes when we talk about activism, we want activism to be as like seamless and peaceable as possible. True, but when but you're talking not. about contention, there's mm -hmm. a grappling happening there. I think I've used, um, I think I've heard people use the word a reckoning. Yes. There is supposed to be some contention between what I'm trying to instill in you and what you are currently doing. Um, in my social movements and organizing class, this is where I really got to dive into the theory of social movements. And there's a lot of theories out there, believe me. But this idea of cycles of contention was drilled mm -hmm. into us. How that power concedes to nothing, right? Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said that. And this idea of like yeah. how these cycles of contention are continuous and have to be continuous in order to kind of come into this era of the social movement, right? Like the Black Lives Matter hashtag, for example, that mm -hmm. existed prior to everything that's going on now. Prior to your grandma Sally having a reason to step mm -hmm. outside and join people on the streets, right? There were these cycles of contention of bringing to the forefront how black bodies on the ground is not okay. We are saying no to that and we're continuing to push into that until more and more people took ownership of that and said, I'm also diving into that. So like that's how like activism can parallel and works in hand with the organizing that happens on the ground. Even with the advocacy, they all have a part to play in that cycle of contention. So it's like, even if I had to mm -hmm. put it in layman's terms, you're talking about continuously making people uncomfortable. It can't be an isolated incident where it's like, I'm uncomfortable today and now we have achieved what what we need to achieve. It's like, we need to continually make you uncomfortable in some way, whether that's just like philosophically uncomfortable, but there has to be something happening where you are psychologically <laughs> uncomfortable. With something that's Honestly, going on. great. And it has to happen. That's a great way to put it because I think about my own lived experience and how when I walk through spaces that don't recognize me, that aren't used to me, I'm constantly uncomfortable. People don't know what that feels like. So handing that to somebody else kind of shifts their reality to be like, oh, this, this, I don't like this. Take it off. And you're like, oh, you can't take it off. Just keep wearing it. Yeah, yeah. By the time you get overwhelmed, you'll do something about it, essentially. 
as medical students and future healthcare practitioners, what are we actually <laughs> looking to like to activate to a certain extent? And I think when we talk about this plainly, the one thing that we're all supposed to be able to get behind as people who are going to be doctors mm. is health equity, mm. healthcare parity, making sure people have equal access to healthcare resources and making sure that we're not just taking the health profile differences between groups for granted, that we're pursuing more and more knowledge about those healthcare profiles and that we're pursuing solutions to the disparity between those healthcare profiles, yeah. right? So health equity. So health equity, context is huge. And I think you're already laying the ground to that. Like when I think about health equity, that looks like the attainment of the highest level of health for all people. That definition actually was coined from the Healthy People 2020, right? Um, and it focuses on the multifaceted, multi-hyphenated experience that each individual has and how that ties into their health. So an example right here that I will give you is stats, y'all. So I'm at Berkeley and I'm doing my biostats in R, which has been like great because you can take big data and tell that computer to actually analyze it for you. And as we're digging around and understanding more about the disparity of health, this was actually brought up in one of my classes. They talked about how in 1920s, like it was legendary if you lived until 60 years of age, right? And right now in 2020, the average lifespan is about 7.86 years, right? So you live until 79. But the reality is how long you live actually varies by your zip code. So researchers from the NYU, as well as from Lagoon Health in New York, did this huge analysis of the states in the United States and kind of varying from zip code to zip code to see what does this actually look like, right? Is it just because maybe people in the North are living longer than the South? What if we just like look at one city? So let's use Chicago, right? So imagine this. You've been working hard for 30 plus years. Your kids are in college. You've been paying taxes. and Honestly, you're just looking forward to retirement. If you're living in Chicago and your zip code is 60624, studies have shown that the average life expectancy is 58 years old. If you just drive 19 minutes away to the zip code 60646, you're estimated to live up to 90 years old. Yeah, that's crazy. That's insane. And so that begs the question, it's like, why is there this huge difference in your life expectancy between these two places that are geographically for all intents and purposes in the same drive. area? Only 19 right? minute drive. Yeah. It's, um, wow. Mind-boggling. Um, and some researchers are diving into that very question and trying to answer that. Why is it that if I was born in this zip code versus that zip code, my progression through life looks completely different? One very interesting study um, done in 26, 2017, actually, was trying to dive into the, the nuance of this question. So this is what they noticed, right? So pre-1865, right, in our slavery America prior to emancipation, in this area that they were doing their research on, they saw, they saw that, well, if there was a lot of slave-holding individuals here, or there were a lot of slaves that lived in this zip code at that time, fast forward to 2020 in that same location, they noticed that this spot right here has the slowest decline in cardiac mortality for Blacks and Whites. They essentially saw this correlation here that anyone living in an area with a high concentration of slaves in the pre-emancipation era of America currently was just declining in health, whether you were Black or white. And that was a combination of the era that they were living in, right? If you were living in a slaveholding state, your health care, right, just looked like the doctor who came onto the plantation to make sure you were fit to do work. There was nothing else beyond that, meaning that if this was an area where we only had two main families that were white, but everyone else really that made up that population was classified as less than, the federal regulations that, and the federal resources that were going into that space were minimal. There was no real healthcare system to take care of people who did not feel the dichotomy of being a white male or white mm -hmm. female. Fast forward to 2020, that is taking a toll right? That's underdeveloped, unprioritized right. health issues that have just been ignored and whites and blacks. It's almost as if the inequity is baked in from exactly. what they were doing from before. Nothing has really changed. Exactly. And it's wild because I hear a lot of people saying like, well, like I'm not racist. Okay. Like maybe my uncle was, but like, I'm not racist. And it's just like, okay, mm -hmm. 
let's just pause and get past the fact that you think this is about you. There are people right. and systems that are suffering to the extent that the research showed that whether you were white or you were black, right? If you had some sort of heart disease, your decline, well, if you had some sort of heart disease, your mortality compared to a difference of quote somewhere else, right? Essentially, this disparity was highlighting that it didn't matter if you were black or you were white, right? It was by virtue of the era you were living in, right? If you lived in this area, you had worse health outcomes, regardless of the color of your skin. And that was traced all the way back to pre-emancipation. The same area had the highest percentage of slaves, and the same area had the lowest percentage of health systems that were dedicated to the citizens living there. So people now are suffering because of that. All right, so moving forward, we're talking about these areas that had this high or some of the highest density of slave owning um, pre-Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. So Emancipation Proclamation is in theory, the decree that abolished slavery in, in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, ended the scourge of slavery. And as far as we're concerned, after that, everybody was equal and we, we went off into a multiracial sunset. So we have the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865. So I think a big thing to highlight is that in 1865, that legislation mm -hmm. passed, right? But there weren't structures in place to support that legislation. So right. if all of a sudden you were freed, yes, right? Mm -hmm. What was next? Where were you going to live? Where were you going to get an education? Who was going to take care of you if you were sick? In the Southern states, especially, people, Black people were denied countless times to get any health care, to get any type of housing, to get any type of protection whatsoever. And this is when we start to see the trends of just folks going up into the North, right? So the emancipation occurred, but the federal government didn't actually have the systems to support their new citizens to actually be mm -hmm. in this whole era of the American dream, right? And this references like a, a history that me and Martha kind of went over in the first and second episode mm -hmm. when um, I remember Martha mentioning that people love to believe that slavery and racism was defeated simply by force of like moral character that, you know, like white people had this great moral reckoning. And then they were like, we should stop doing this to these people. But that's actually not what happened. What happened was that there was a, there was a, there was a confluence of political factors that resulted in the emancipation process yes. and black people were freed, but that did not make white people in this country feel any differently yeah. about exactly. them. Like they were not rushing to help us um, integrate into the society. They did not want us here still. It was actually even the other so way on. around. Let's be honest, right? If you were a slaveholder, right, I would call you a, um, a hate criminal at that point in time, right? And all of a sudden, all your free labor was gone. Right, true. No, You'd be even no, more upset. You're no. upset. You're like, how am I supposed how? to make money now? Right? What? You know what yeah. people did? This is when you see the police force really taking on a true vision, right? For any reason possible, they would throw black folks in jail for any reason possible. And that's the 13th and Amendment. What? And yeah. throw sentences on you like you didn't even know what to do. And how are you supposed to kind of pay for your crime, you go right back to your original slave order and you work mm. for them to pay for your crimes. So we see this emancipation era just turn into a, a new era of crime, essentially. Right? You're free, but uh, we need to make sure you don't actually stay free. So, yeah. This is when we first start to see the, spec the specter of state-sanctioned criminal activity to a certain extent, right? Because I think when we think of crime, we have very classist views of crime where we look at crime as something that is exclusive to people acting outside yeah. the law. Exactly. But this is when we start to see this kind of gray area between what is actually legal and what is still criminal. What we now acknowledge is criminal mm -hmm. and criminal against like the human spirit, against humanity mm -hmm. in modern day 2020. And this will come to play a big part <laughs> in the later discussion in this same episode mm -hmm. when we talk a little bit more about police brutality. But this is when you first oh, start yeah. seeing the legalization of brutalizing a group of people. Mm -hmm. and yes. One of the first things we're taught in uh, bioethics is there's, there's a difference between what is moral, what is ethical, and what is yes. legal. So a lot of things can be legal isn't necessarily that they're morally correct or ethically correct. Mm -hmm. And I think we see a lot during this period of time mm -hmm. 
where there are a lot of things that are legal. So people, I mean, even now, but let's, let's not get into that. <laughs> there are a lot of things that are seen as um, because this is legal, this is correct. You know, because I'm allowed to treat black people this way, it's correct. But uh, Martha, you're hidden. You're hidden on jackpot. Because mm-hmm. the way I see this era, it was just free minds coming together to string words that look like being black was illegal, mm-hmm. right? That was that was it, right? How do we take a people and a culture and call that a crime? Right. How Anyhow, these people mm-hmm. just by mm-hmm. them And then just a shout out to the shirt that I'm wearing that I got from my friend got this from me, Aaron Vrolik from SNMA, right? You see, free ish, free ish, right? Because 1865, we free, but were we really? So yeah. So when we talk about 1865 and the Emancipation Proclamation, we want to draw you or draw your attention to another time point where in this episode, this is about medical activism, right? And so a large part of our discussion is actually going to revolve around the American Medical Association or the AMA. The AMA is founded in 1846, right? Before we begin, I'd like to say that um, we do not hate the AMA. We don't have anything. Well, we have nothing against the, <laughs> the AMA. AMA. We're, we're reporting historical yeah. historical uh, things that happen. Right, because me and Tosin, actually, me and Tosin met at an AMA interview. We did. We were both people mm-hmm. who were eager to get involved in policy. We came into medical school and we went to an AMA interim meeting and boom, we met in like an event or in a room <laughs> discussing, you know, policy and policy resolutions and some of the things that we were going to vote on at that interim meeting. So we have nothing against AMA. This Mm -hmm. is a historical podcast, and we're simply just talking about the history and reporting things as they happen. And with that being said, and I do want to highlight, though, that, like, it is crucial that we model what it looks like to to actually look at our history, because oftentimes our institutions don't look at our history. How are we expected to not repeat the mistakes we made if we don't even look at the mistakes themselves? So this is just our own way of having a reckoning of that history, bringing it to the forefront. There should be common knowledge, but it's not. And I think that's the thing that that's kind of heartening about this history too. Like, I don't want to give any spoilers, but like, you know, like we're not, we're not going to give any spoilers. We're just going to dive into (laughs) it. We're just going to dive into it. So Tosin is just giving you a breakdown of the social climate, which birthed the American Medical Association. So we're saying the American Medical Association is founded in 1846. Then in 1865, somewhere in there, you know, Abraham Lincoln is like, all right, guys, you can't own slaves anymore. We're, we're not doing that anymore. And so African-Americans are now trying to figure out, or Black Americans, previously enslaved people are trying to figure out how do we provide health care for each other? How do we make sure that we're able to get into medical school and produce Black doctors? All these things are happening. We referenced the AMA of your before, and this is an AMA that was much less progressive. Even when we say the word progressive now, we're really referencing the medical student section yes. of the AMA. Because if you go to these conferences, that does not exactly apply to the physician section of the AMA. That's a, I would say that section, the AMA is broken down into sections. There's medical students, residents, physicians. And the physician section, it almost seems the further you get in your training, the less progressive that you are. Yeah. It can also just be, um, it just also could be hallmark. Uh, that could be a generational shift for all I know. I don't know if that was always true because this is still a relative, a relatively young organization. But it could also be just um, the class you're in as students because we're at a lower class. Yes. We're more likely to fight for things that could be affecting us. But I think as we get higher into our our monies, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. increasing socioeconomic status, we may be able to like distance ourselves a little bit more. And I have seen that with some of my resident friends. And that's a, that's a tangent that I'm not right. We talk about later in the episode, yeah. but like, um, okay. So we have the AMA we're fast forwarding to 1870 and we have three black physicians, Dr. Alexander T. Augusta, Charles B. Purvis and Alpheus W. Tucker. They are trying to get AMA membership and they're denied entry into the Medical Society of the District of Columbia. Mm-hmm. So how we just talked about the AMA having these sections that are kind of made up by whether you're a medical student, resident physician, at this time also, and what is true now is that you need to have membership in a state chapter or a state medical society in order to be a part of the AMA or to be eligible for AMA yeah. membership. Or even to get and patients and credibility too. That was huge. Yes, even to do that. 
And so these gentlemen, they're in, they're trying to get entry to the Medical Society of the District of Columbia. And again, we're, we're trying to make sure that we contextualize what's happening here. We think of DC now and we think of like a Mecca of young, beautiful, professional black people. people. I know <laughs> Martha said that she doesn't necessarily feel that I, way. I wasn't aware. That's okay. what's happening over there. Like literally like there are things about DC where people refer to the golden triangle, right? Where like at any point in time, if you are like commuting in this area of DC, you're going to walk into a young, beautiful black person who's like upwardly mobile and moving about their career, um, their career um, prospects and stuff. It's it's great. So this is the DC then, but DC is geographically southern, and at this time it is culturally yes, southern. Yes, so it's actually made up, or the medical district of Columbia's medical society is actually made up of a huge contingency of men who are Confederates, mm-hmm. like they are men who were the confederacy if not actual confederates they were with the status quo they were living the norm of their life having no reason to challenge it right so it's like you have black people founding their medical schools howard meharry in this case we're talking about dc so howard and they're like okay that's well and good that you guys are becoming physicians but that doesn't mean that we want to grant you entry into our medical society and so Martha and I have mentioned at least one of these gentlemen before. Yeah, uh, Dr. Augusta. We talked about him in episode, I think, three. Oh, yeah, we yeah. talked about Black pioneers. Mm-hmm. And so he was uh, a surgeon major during the Civil War. So in the U.S., um, he was rejected from medical school and ended up going to Canada and to get his medical degree. Classic. And then he ends up running, right? Yeah, during that time, everyone went abroad because medical schools mm-hmm. were like, uh, we don't want you here. Mm-hmm. He ends up running uh, Trinity Medical Hospital, which is in Toronto, Canada, and then he comes back to the U.S. to serve as surgeon major. But even with all his like great um, accomplishments, he was still paid less than white physicians of his rank. Mm-hmm. So he's paid less than paid less than white physicians of his rank. And at the time, we were talking about some of the things that kind of transpired between him and like lower ranking white men Mm -hmm. who were also enlisted in the military. Anyway, after he ends up serving, he has this healthcare administration profile where he obviously is capable of running a healthcare center. He's also a surgeon and he ends up becoming one of the first black faculty at Howard University in its founding. So this is in 1868. He's the anatomy demonstrator and instructor. So some of the white men who founded Howard with him They bring him before the medical, they actually, I'm not going to say they bring him, they accompany him Mm -hmm. to go before the um, medical society of the District of Columbia. And they're like, hey, this guy and these other guys should have membership because they are killing it, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, they are your peers. Mm -hmm. That is not, that's That's not not what the medical society is. But obviously, that's not how they're going to see it. I mean, these are people who are part of the Confederate, right? Yeah. So they're not going to see people who were previously enslaved as their equal. No, no, they're no, not. No. And so at this point, they're still like Tosin referenced earlier. They're still trying to find ways to enforce the old guard of slavery mm-hmm. that was now illegal. So slavery becomes illegal, but it does not change white people's hearts and minds. And again, white people's hearts and minds did not change. And then that's what freed the slaves. Exactly. That's not what happened. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of other things going on there. They have more to do with industry and economy and politics than they do have to do with any sort of moral, um, any sort of moral, what is the word? Um, moral compass, the foundation. Honestly, yeah, like you saying that makes me think about uh, a discussion I had in class the other day. Someone was talking about their mom said a comment and they're like, mom, you can't say that nowadays. And I'll be honest, I actually challenged her and I said, is it actually mom, you can't say that? Or mom, that's not true. That's not the way to think about people. We should value people's lives. I think we are still in this era of being politically correct, but having values that segregate, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, we're in 1870, and you have these three exemplary Black physicians who are brought before the Medical Society of the District of Columbia. And this is not even the first time exactly that Black people have come before the Medical Society of the District of Columbia. Black people have been trying to get membership to this chapter since the founding of Howard and right directly after the Civil War. But yeah, and still they're not with it. And so a series of kind of like political battles ensue. So if you ever seen a made process, they like to do what's called parliamentary process. You bring up something on the floor, you vote on whether or not, you, you vote on several different things. You have to vote on whether or not People can enter motions against the thing that's been brought to the floor, vote on whether or not you want to make changes to that. And so all these different mechanisms are kind of happening. And 
and basically black physicians keep coming back with um their segregationist al- our desegregationist allies mm-hmm. and saying hey like we are going to be part of this chapter and the AMA the grand body of the AMA anyway not the medical district of um not the medical society of the district of Columbia they're like oh you know what our our hands are tied mm-hmm. like the, the chapters get to decide for themselves Selves. what who they allow in exactly so we can't do anything how essentially treating it like a social club versus there you go that's exact that's actually perfect because it's like you're the governing body of medicine but now your hands are tied but then right right so yes and it's costing these physicians patients it is costing black physicians patients because even though you don't expressly need ama sanctioning to practice it gives you credibility, it gives you social status, it makes you look like a position of status and good repute in order to have membership in a um, a state medical society and thus the AMA. So we're going to fast forward here to 1910. <laughs> the AMA, so the same way that Black people have had it with the AMA and do eventually get entry after making their own association, the National Medical Association, which is um, at the student level, we know that as the SNMA, mm-hmm. but on a national level, the NMA is what becomes um, the seat of Black physicians. And they eventually do get entry into these medical societies. But we fast forward to 1910, and you have to remember at this time, medical school is not what we know it now. It's not the money-sucking behemoth that we know it as now. Like Medical school at this point is actually pretty cheap to open. Only the most like prestigious medical schools take over a year to get your degree. It is like a completely different arena. It is probably mm-hmm. a little bit more egalitarian in some ways than it is now. And the AMA does not like that. The AMA is like, listen, we have white men who we are we are the backbone of medicine in this country Mm -hmm. and medicine is supposed to be profitable for us. What is one way that we can make sure that it stays profitable? Me and Martha have talked previously about how medicalizing birth was one way that they accomplished that again through the AMA. But another way they do this is they commission or they fund what's called the Flexner report. I was so shocked when I read the Flexner report talking about a medical history reckoning. All right. Yeah. And so this is when we start seeing medicine become this very, become even more exclusive. So white men protecting the exclusivity of the field of medicine or medical practice. So the AMA funds the Flexner report and the Flexner report on the surface is just supposed to be a report aiming to boost the status of physicians by decreasing their number, thus making the profession more exclusive. The report's basically just supposed to like report or assess the standards of different medical schools and decide if they're doing their job properly. Mm -hmm. Oh, like we just want to make sure that this education is standardized and it's quality across the board. Yes, the birth of accreditation. (laughs) Yes, really the aim is to reduce the number of medical schools and the Mm -hmm. Flexner Report does accomplish this. So we go from 100 and I believe 48 medical schools to 66 medical schools generally. And this... um... This really affects Black Americans. Yes, that's a huge thing to point out. It does affect them. Because they were already poorly funded Mm -hmm. in the first place. Yes, already poorly funded. And they were already responsible. They were responsible for giving out the majority of Black physicians Mm -hmm. in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I want to point out that they're poorly funded because they also ask for less money from their students because they know that people Mm -hmm. can't afford or Black people can't afford the same things because we're just on the heels of like the civil war and all these yes. different things affecting whether or not black people can even have the same like financial standing as other people so they actually charge less yes. tuition mm. than other schools and also important and so, to keep in mind that other medical students other medical schools weren't accepting black students either so where else yes. were they really supposed to go supposed to go mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so from that the we had there were seven medical schools for black Americans. Yes. And after the report, only two remained, yes. which were Howard and Meharry, yes. which are currently still yeah. mm-hmm. the only two. Unless we know. call, no, we can, we have Charles Morehouse. Morehouse, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, and I don't think Charles Drew is found out this time, and Morehouse, I think Morehouse, no, Morehouse isn't found at this time either. Morehouse is found a little bit later in the 1900s, if I remember correctly. And so the publishing the Flexner Report, this is like an interesting turning point in medical history because this is when you start seeing medicine, like I said, become the money-sucking behemoth of today. It becomes a very much like almost like um, 
a lifestyle career to a certain extent. It's a career that only people who have a certain amount of money can even gain any access to. Mm -hmm. And the Flexner Report kind of ignores this when assessing the medical schools that it does. Like the medical schools that were the best funded are the, are the medical schools that were allowed to stay afloat after the Flexner Report. And that even includes Howard and Meharry. Howard and Meharry even still had to struggle to stay open yeah. after the Flexner Report. Yeah. And that was only because the Flexner Report essentially, because it because it reported on what schools it thought met a certain standard or criteria, it also determined who was going to receive money after that and who wasn't. So it wasn't like it said, you cannot give this school money, but because this school is named the Flexer Report, for instance, as not being as good a medical school as this other school, people are less inclined to fund that medical school. And so Howard and Meharry were able to probably absorb the funds from the other the other Black medical schools. They're probably able to absorb other resources. I know the National Science Foundation also continue to give them money. And so, like I said, the aim is to standardize and improve the quality of medical education, at least on the surface, but really it was to make medicine more exclusive. Further, there's debate about whether or not Flexner himself was a racist. And I love when people like to debate whether or not individual people are racist, because I'm like, does it matter? It doesn't matter. If like the what they result... did was racist. Like the end result was black <laughs> people being disadvantaged in this country. It was racist. So it doesn't really matter yes. if he was racist or not. And this again points to this propensity, what? I think, sometimes of not black people when talking about racism to focus on it as like a hearts, a hearts Heart, issue, mm -hmm. a hearts and minds Ooh. and moral issue. And I'm like, it, there's a science here. There's a pattern here. It's not just about how you feel. Like mm -hmm. Flexner personally did not have to hate black people in order to take part in a racist no. system. And be a racist. The system already that existed to do that work. Flexner had no work to do, right? If you bring a group exactly. of people who are already in a system that doesn't value black lives, inherently, whatever you create will not value black lives. It will not value exactly. anyone else who's in this category of other, essentially. And that's exactly what we see happening here. Yes. And so Flexner, whether or not he's a racist, honestly, personally a racist is really, it's, it's of little consequence whether that we determine that. Harriet A. Washington is one of the authors that we've highlighted before in this podcast. And she also was part of the group of authors that actually brings forward the report detailing AMA's funding of the Flexner report. And what she says of Flexner is that he also went beyond to stipulate that Black physicians should only treat Black patients that Black physicians should have their roles curtailed. And he warned that essentially untrained Negro bearing an MD label is dangerous. What does that even mean, an untrained Negro bearing an MD label? They already have the MD, so that should mean that they're trained. But he's not I mean, I feel like this is no different from really what the AMA has been standing for. Like, JAMA, the journal of the AME, repeatedly published articles that Black people were threats to the foundation of white society, right? Yes. So someone saying something like that, really, that aligns right with the time. That was the norm. You are staining us. You should just do your thing with your people, MD or no MD. So that brings us to why are we even talking about the AMA? Like I said, I didn't want to give you guys like a spoiler at the beginning because I know we're seeing a lot of not so nice things about the AMA and its cohorts during this period of time between the 1860s and to the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. Why are we talking about the AMA? Well, partly because this episode is about medical activism and the AMA is the institutionally sanctioned seat of medical activism at this time and advocacy to a certain extent. So it has historically been that for white physicians. White physicians continually use the AMA's weight to push their own political agendas when talking about their practice and things that affected their pocket, which is the same thing, right? It has historically been that for white physicians. And as the demographics of clinicians have changed, it's become the seat for an array of issues that affect underrepresented minorities in medicine and just our patient population in general. So if you as a medical student, resident, or physician have an issue near and dear to your heart, you can advocate for it in your respective section of the AMA. The AMA is dedicated to driving medicine toward a more equitable future, removing obstacles that interfere with patient care and confronting the nation's greatest public health crises. That is the AMA of today mm -hmm. versus the AMA of yore. So students, resident, and physicians in the AMA, they draft policy resolutions that those in the AMA vote on, and they have the chance to make those policy resolutions things that are implemented on a national level. So they end up becoming frameworks for national level policies. Mm -hmm. 
And Tosin could give us some examples of this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so AMA likes to kind of report out the things they've done every year. They call this advocacy in action. So I'm just going to give you some examples from what they released earlier this year in February. Um, so some examples of policies that was written internally in the AMA and how the AMA has kind of informed national policies um, is one around um, the nation and medically the population of folks who are considered undocumented, right? So the AMA convinced the administration to reverse course on its proposal to revoke the nation's medically deferred deportation policy for critically ill individuals, many of whom who are children with conditions like cancer and muscular dystrophy. So the AMA said, yo, admin, that's not okay. We still need to take care of these people. I don't care if you're labeling them as documented or not archaic, right? Another example, AMA supported state actions to prohibit the sale of flavored e-cigarettes and tobacco products that attract young people. We're seeing this era of jewel kind of take off, and the AMA has been pushing states to get policy and agendas that kind of say, okay, no, we need to actually bring a stop to this. And another thing that kind of goes hand in hand with that, they supported the state and federal legislation to raise the minimum age to purchase tobacco and e-cigarettes to 21 now. So AMA has hands in some of these national, federal, and even statewide policies that are affecting the health of our um, population for our patients and even the health of physicians too, as we think about burnout or we think about accreditation. AMA has a hand in, in all of this. Right. And so, again, like, let's talk a little bit more about who the AMA is today. So the AMA recognizes that racism in its systemic, structural, institutional, and interpersonal forms is an urgent threat to public health, the advancement of health equity, and a barrier to excellence in the delivery of medical care. The AMA opposes all forms of racism. The AMA denounces police brutality and all forms of racially motivated violence. The AMA will actively work to dismantle racist and discriminatory policies and practices across all of healthcare. And that was one of the AMA's um, most recent statements oh. on police brutality that was released uh, this summer. And I, this is such a drastic step from what we just talked about with the AMA was. Yes. yes. And, and the AMA does this itself, mind you. It's mm -hmm. not like, no, I don't, if um, in our in my research, no one blows the whistle on the AMA. The mm -hmm. AMA actually corrects itself mm -hmm. to a certain extent. To, that could yeah. be because of the number of like minority <laughs> physicians who are a part of the AMA, mm -hmm. but essentially reverses course on its own. It calls itself out and it goes on to apologize. Well, I feel like, if I'll be honest, that... A lot of times when we see institutions, right, or organizations like the AMA kind of calling itself out, it's during a climate where the nation is following that same trend, right? Like mm -hmm. other people are calling themselves out. Other people are releasing statements and saying no to racism, no to health disparities. But if we look at the AMA just in the 1960s, AMA was silent over the debates of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mm -hmm. They put off NMA's repeated requests to support efforts to amend that, to push into that. It wasn't until it was, oh, everyone's doing it now, that the AMA said, you know what? We need more Black physicians. You know what? Let's create our minority affairs section, right? That was in 1992, like not too long ago. Right. So it's it, it kind of touches on this idea of when social justice becomes a trend Thanks. and having to be careful when you give white people and non-black people accolades for essentially showing up in the right moments, because mm -hmm. sometimes it is them actually correcting themselves, genuinely correcting themselves. But it's like you have to be very careful not to jump the gun and assume a level of consciousness mm -hmm. just because they managed to do this. In, in a moment where it was profitable. Exactly. Or, that is not activism. Or good. <laughs> it looked good to do that. And I think that's very relevant to the moment that we're in now because now we're seeing a lot of institutions trying to get ahead of any sort of racism or lens that could be put in their institution that might showcase them as mm -hmm. um, racist. This mm -hmm. applies to our institution, other medical institutions. Mm -hmm. Medicine is going through something of a reckoning, but we have to make sure, right, that it's a real reckoning and yes. not simply a symbolic reckoning where everyone comes out and says, we are here for you. Mm -hmm. People of color, happens. black people, mm -hmm. and then nothing happens. No, no sort of actions take place. No sort of actual activism mm -hmm. is is furthered or allied with to a certain extent yeah. if, you, if you care for the word ally. I feel like there's this aspect of 
people trying to to rush into this to be like, okay, we see it now, we want to do something, but we also don't want to show you how we've actually like not been doing anything at all. And I think it has to be <laughs> right. We're not right? About that part. <laughs> it literally has to be the other way around. Talk about the things you miss, or you're gonna keep repeating it just because now you're acknowledging that this is something that is not okay. That racism is a real thing. Twenty years from now, it could be a different issue if we don't start to kind of model and ingrain in our institutions reflection, right? The same way we do with our objective nature of medicine, we're gonna keep repeating the same mistakes and hurting populations that suddenly don't have as much value anymore because it's not trending. Yes. That was beautiful. Yes. Wow. So Martha Martha and, and Tosin have kind of tempered my, my happy ending for the story. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> so in 2008, the AMA issues a formal apology, but we were we will still be watching and 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 making sure that we're active to see making sure we remain active so we can help steer the AMA on its on its its new course into mm-hmm. a more bright, racially equitable future. <laughs> Activism is speaking up. I, I think at its core, it's 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 speaking up when you see an injustice. It's saying it's it's saying doesn't doesn't anybody? Why is that happening? Doesn't anybody see that that's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, I think at its basic, if I was that's what it is. It's asking the questions, paying attention, and asking the questions. And as you ask the questions, you're going to realize that you might be the answer to the very question you're asking. Because nobody else is coming to do it, you know, because it just seems like everybody else is moving forward. Hi, everyone. This is Editing Martha. I'm stopping by because I know this recording ends pretty abruptly, but it's because the whole conversation was very, very long. Uh, almost two hours long so we decided to cut this episode into two so the next episode will be happening will be out uh, a little bit after this episode is released but once again I want to thank you guys so much for supporting a medical history in color I know that we've been taking a while to get the episodes out but med school has really been uh, putting the number putting the number on us I thank you so much for sticking up sticking sticking with us and don't forget to like a comment like and subscribe to the podcast and um, let us know how we're doing and what you would like to hear from us thank you so much bye